This episode is sponsored by Audible, the leading provider of spoken word entertainment all in one place. Fun fact, did you know that if you listen to every title on Audible, you'd be listening for more than three centuries? I knew that, but only because I was the person that had to prepare this ad copy. Right now, you can get a free 30-day trial by visiting audible.com slash splain, or by texting splain to 500-500. That's 500-500. As an Audible member, you will get one credit every month good for any title in our entire premium selection. That means the latest bestseller, the buzziest new release, the hottest celebrity memoir, or that bucket list title you might have been meaning to pick up, like the Audio Award 2021 finalist Axiom's End. Those titles are yours to keep forever in your Audible library, which you can listen to while working from home, on a walk, or just relaxing. Additionally, you can listen to Audible while crouched in the fetal position on the couch, while making dinner as your partner repeatedly stands in the way of every drawer and cabinet you need to access, or simply while you're standing. You know, like just just standing. You'll also get full access to our popular Plus catalog, filled with original entertainment, guided fitness and meditation, sleep tracks for better rest, and podcasts including ad-free versions of your favorite shows. Although I can't see why anyone in their right mind would want to skip such an incredible ad read. It's all included with your membership, no credits needed. So again, go to audible.com slash splain or text splain to 500-500, that's 500-500, for a free 30-day trial. What are you waiting for? Oh right, the rest of this podcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Musical Splitting Podcast. I am your host and man of constant sorrow, one Kavataharian. And I am breaking free from that big rock candy mountain, Lindsay Ellis. <laughs> <laughs> I introduced I introduced him to, uh, if you uh, can't tell. <laughs> I've been inspired. A, a whole new world of intros has been like... <laughs> I can't believe we only started this in the second season. You should have shown yes. that to me like the first episode that we recorded. Oh, but that would have taken effort. I had to copy and paste a link uh, go all the way so into, hard. Uh, into FaceTime. Yeah, uh, effort. Effort. But anyway, today we are talking about the Something movie. Something a little different. Yeah, uh, which I'm surprised about your classification of it, because I, I would not have put it uh, as such as a musical, but... Right. Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou is one of my favorite movies of all time. Like, it oh. is also, it's, and it's also one of like those comfort food movies for mm-hmm. me. You know, it's just like whenever I'm sad or drunk or sad and drunk, which is most days, uh, I'll just throw it on. Yeah. And I had one of those days a couple of weeks ago. And as I was watching it, I was, I realized like by every meaningful criteria, this is a musical. And there's basically no argument against that. Except one, which is, of course, the marketing. So that is where I'm sticking my claim today. Okay. Unless only only marketing matters, which, you know, can actually mean something. Like the only difference between a YA book and a non-YA book is marketing. Plenty yeah. of, you know, plenty of adult published books have all the qualifiers for YA. Plenty of YA books could be classified as adult. That is sort of the question that I had because I, you know, went and searched and was like, is there's discourse? And there was some discourse. But we're going to bring it up. We're going to make, yeah. we're going to bring it up to the surface. My, my first question, which I guess I don't think we've really ever asked unless my memory is shot, which is 100% likely, which is what qualifies something as a musical versus a movie that has songs in it. Right. Yeah. And I guess that is a, 
another basically kind of a marketing question. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. Let's Google it. <laughs> well, fuck it. Let's just Google it. A musical, musical. is a thing that's really annoying that Kava's dad falls asleep season, in. Season two, episode 20. What we is a musical? Get around, we finally get around to defining musical. So Wikipedia, our trusted source, of course, only really kind of puts it in uh, to and under the subheader of musical theater. Mm. Says that the story and emotional content of a musical, humor, pathos, love, anger, are communicated through words, music, movement, and technical aspects of the entertainment as an integrated whole. So there you go. Okay. Um, and basically, uh, the reason I'm kind of you know willing to go down with this ship is because every argument I've seen made against this film as a musical mm-hmm. doesn't hold any water. water. Uh, <laughs> doesn't hold salt. Musical in the non-Western, musical film and television, um, a film genre in which songs by the characters are interwoven into the narrative, sometimes yeah. accompanied by dancing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess we can talk about Diegesis a little later. That is another uh, argument I've seen made against yeah. this film, but it's also one that super, super doesn't work. I am a man of constant sorrow I gotta be honest, I you know, I've only seen this movie like once proper and then parts here and there. So this is a good one for me to revisit because I really don't remember it beyond, of course, the Man of Constant Sorrow. And then mm-hmm. there's the one blues song that I really liked that they sing by the fire or, or the guy, the, the what is it? It's like the Robert Johnson character that they pick yeah. up. He's supposed to have made a deal with the devil. Tommy. Our, our fourth Ghostbuster. <laughs> but I don't really remember all the songs, which is also why I was confused by it. But again, admittedly, I barely remember the movie. So I... I isn't there's like a chorus part where they're like a Greek chorusy kind of thing or, or not Greek um, chorus? What is it called? The sirens, sirens. That's yeah, there's the about. sirens. Yeah, there's several chorus parts. The clan have a musical and dance number. Oh, why do I not uh, remember that? Maybe I blocked <laughs> like, it out because it's the clan. Yeah, the, 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 the clan have an entire like Shit. dance number. It's been a while. Okay. okay. It's, yeah. But it's a Coen Brothers movie, so I'm always excited to watch anything yeah. by the Coens. They're, even though even the worst Coen Brothers movie is is still better than. Probably Which is the worst Coen Brothers movie, movie while we're here? That's a hard question to answer. I mean, it's not. there's not really a worst Coen Brothers okay. movie as long as there's the least it's not the worst, the it's great. the least boring. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because I feel yeah. like I didn't hate Hail Caesar, but... Oh, I loved Hail Caesar. I just watched yeah, it Yeah, I was like, like but week. it was just sort of like I watched it and I was like, well, that happened. You know, and I didn't really <laughs> feel compelled to revisit it. So I'm like, is that bad? Uh, or is that good? I feel like good? a thing, too, with Coen Brothers movies is that at any point you'll watch one and whether or not it sticks with you is pointless because five years later you'll watch it and be like, oh, shit, I didn't even realize like this had all this other stuff going on in it. Like, yeah, yeah. You can really revisit Coen Brothers movies at any point. It's Obviously, we went our, to film school, but, you know. Our problematic faves. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and they are. And we'll get into that, too. Yeah. But as filmmakers, they're, you know, you can't really argue Yeah, with I think their, that's, their it's hard to articulate their uh, appeal because they are so, like, subtle and strange and they, they're very inconsistent. I don't have a least favorite. I can't think of one. Like I said, I feel like at any point... Something I don't like, I'll go back later and I'll yeah. watch it again. I'll I think like, at, oh, at most it'll be like, it doesn't hit with you that much, but I can't, I've never like disliked a Cohen movie. No. I'm interested to go down the problematic path. I guess I'd never really been part of this discourse, so I'm pretty... Well, here is the thing. Okay. As, as, during our great reckoning of, you know, inclusivity in film, mm-hmm. um, of the many foots in mouth that have happened over the last 18 months or so, mm-hmm. of course, our boys, Joel and Ethan, had to go do the thing. And... Like Woody Allen before them did the thing where it was like when asked why 
are all of your protagonists white and mm-hmm. almost all of, like they're all white men and Francis McDormand, yeah. you know, the two genders. <laughs> and, you know, they did the thing where it's like, well, we didn't write parts for the non-whites. And if we had, we would have cast them, but we didn't. And we don't, you know, cast people. Oh, yeah. What, what is that argument where it's like our casting has to be motivated? So mm. if they're going to be non-white, there has to be a reason for it, which is okay. just like really showing mm. your ass yeah. <laughs> like, in terms of rationale. And, uh, it, you know, I think Woody Allen did the same thing. Our our problematic not fave. Fuck him. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah started watching some of that doc and she's like, do you want to watch this? I was like, no. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to watch this. Every Sunday at nine, I'm like, (laughs) glued to HBO. Like, yes, drag him, queen. Drag him, queen, finally. (laughs) I watched the Michael Jackson one, and I was like, okay, I'm cool on this. I was like, I'll just take your word for it. Like, I don't need to hear all this super detail. So it's like, it's harsh. Uh, But yeah, so uh, uh, basically, I don't understand why these guys can't just be like, Look, it just didn't occur to us to write yeah, outside of people white guys that from Minnesota. look like. It. Yeah, it's like we're white guys from Minnesota. We write like we our, our protagonists are white. It just never occurred to us yeah. to think outside of that. And we'll do better in the future. Boom, done. Yeah. You know, just just admit it's it. So just, simple. Just, it's so yeah, simple. Just, like just admit that it just didn't occur to you that like it just didn't interest you. That's yeah. okay. <laughs> I, don't, like, I don't think black people are, are like eager to write stories about white people, white people from Minnesota. Minnesota. <laughs> like I, I think it's it's okay to admit that those stories just didn't interest you as writers yeah. like but just admit it you don't need to be like well it needs to be a reason for it like ah Joel <laughs> buddy baby darling <sighs> shut up anyway okay. so and then that's just that's just one thing like that I, I have a lot of thoughts on this movie in general because it, it is my problematic fave okay it's extremely I'm problematic I'm curious to I'll be excited to hear about that in the second half but in the meantime why don't I read some notes or as we like to call Scarf them, notes. the landmines. The landmines. The landmine notes. Okay. Oh, brother, where art thou? I, I got to think of something funny to say when there's a question mark. Because obviously when there's an exclamation point, I just yell, oh, brother, where art thou? Yeah, we need to do Oliver so you can be like, Oliver. <laughs> Oliver. Oh, brother, where art thou? Is a 2000 film written, produced, co-edited, and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, and starring George Clooney, John Turturro, Tim Blake Nelson, Chris Thomas King, John Goodman, and Holly Hunter. What a cast. You know, it's like peak Cohen. Yeah. Except for Clooney. Yeah. No, wait, I guess Clooney became a, he's a semi-regular. Never mind. I've always liked the way they use Clooney in their movies because they sort of get that Clooney's an idiot and he thinks yeah, he's, he's a lot like a smarter Kendall. than he is. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't like pretentious Clooney. I like stupid Clooney. And like, yeah. the Coens really get that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, that's like, now that I think of it, it's just like, my only, like, my all my favorite Clooney's are, like, when he's a dumbass, yeah. you know. This and fucking, what's the other one? Uh, Burn After Reading, he's funny Hail as shit. Caesar. Hail Caesar, yeah. They get him. They're like, no, Clooney, you're a dumb, like you said, he's a Ken doll. <laughs> you're a Ken doll. You're a Ken doll. Don't overcomplicate this. <laughs> you're the thinking this. man's Ken doll. <laughs> uh, the film is loosely based on Homer's Odyssey set in 1937 in the Jim Crow South during the Great Depression with Clooney's... Ulysses Everett McGill as an analog for Ulysses on a quest to win back his wife, Penelope, before his house gets flooded by the newly built Tennessee Valley Authority. Oh, are you going to be the authority on the Tennessee Valley Authority as being somebody well, from Tennessee? Well, the TVA Tennessee? is uh, the um, hydraulic electrical system that, you know, fuels a huge portion of the South. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's like five states. So it's it's just, it's called the TVA because it like uh, is largely based on the Tennessee River, but it... Uh, it's not just Tennessee. It's just called the Tennessee Valley Authority because of the Tennessee River. Okay. 
Uh, although Clooney and Turturro did not do their own singing, Tim Blake Nelson, whom we stand, where do you stand him from just in general? Yeah, everybody loves Tim Blake yeah. Nelson. Yeah. Well, I don't know if there was a specific, like, you usually have like, Yeah, Tim, one Tim Blake role. Nelson is like. He's you know, an unsung he, hero. <laughs> yeah, he's like Dolly Parton. He's one of those, like, you know, characters that everyone, regardless of, like, political stripe, just kind of yeah. loves. Yep, yep. And, like, is <laughs> basically unproblematic and, you know, is so, you know, it, but he's also not famous enough that anyone's going to, like, get too mad about anything he says. So, yeah, it's yeah. true. I feel like that's another Coen Brothers. Uh, Hallmark is to just have all character actors that everybody loves yeah. <laughs> in all their roles. Um, okay. Anyway, so Tim Blake, no- Tim Blake Nelson sang his part during In the Jailhouse Now. <laughs> Note, everyone loves Tim Blake Nelson. <laughs> I jumped I, ahead there I, a little bit. <laughs> if I must repeat myself. <laughs> yes. Uh, most of the music used in the film is what is most commonly known as old time mountain music, which is related to folk music and bluegrass, but it is not the same thing. With a smattering of blues in there for some seasoning. Okay, so folk music and bluegrass are not the same thing. Perhaps for those who do not know the differences, can you explain? Well, uh, I think I have a note there pretty soon, which is, oh, okay. you know, ask yourself why. Oh my why. God, I keep getting ahead of myself. <laughs> ask yourself why bluegrass, these landmines are very different this time. It's more <laughs> me just jumping ahead without actually reading. Ask yourself why bluegrass and the blues are two different and distinct genres. I don't know. Actually, I mean, I can tell you by the sound, but I can't actually describe. I, I guess it's like a matter of instrumentation is what I could tell you. Also, blues are different. C- c- come on. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The movie was. You're so, no, no, no. I'm no, so yeah, close. You're the, so cooked. The, the grass. Bluegrass. bluegrass has grass in it. Do they smoke the blues? Weed? The blues. Who uh, uh, forms. Who forms bluegrass? Oh, white people made bluegrass? <laughs> Yes. And black people made the blues? Is it that yes. simple? Okay. Yes. It's segregation is the reason that those two oh, genres. Oh, I never would have gone uh, that way. <laughs> yeah. So it's a complicated thing. And it's sort of like was a, was a thing I kind of had a little bit of a hard time coming to terms with. The only reason bluegrass as a genre exists is because of segregation. No shit. Uh, yes. That's and, fucking uh, wild. Basically, directly after A Birth of a Nation came out um, and you had record companies kind of starting to, you know, divide radio stations by genre. In the South, in the late 19th century, despite Jim Crow, despite segregation, Mm -hmm. um, folk music wasn't really racially segregated. Mm -hmm. And you can tell this by, like, the types of instrumentation that are used, like, the instruments that are used. Like, the banjo is not a white people invention. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And somehow that one has just been completely appropriated. Um, Like, you know, we we don't know exactly where the banjo is from, but, like, it is most probably uh, an instrument of uh, West African origin. Mm. So basically, like, folk music in in the late 19th, century especially yeah. in the lower classes and say you know the same holds true of like food clothes is pretty much the damn same okay. um, yeah, yeah. and you know they had a lot of the same um you know uh, qualities a lot of the same s- singing styles and so whenever radio stations popped up and marketers and music labels started dividing things by genre. Mm-hmm. And so and that, that's also kind of why, you know, bluegrass is like a, the commercial brand of white folk music. And basically up until like the 1960s, there was no commercial brand of black folk music. Mm. Um, the closest you'd get was blues. But other than that, you would just have like black people would have rock and roll and then white people would <laughs> appropriate that, and, yep. you know, make more money off of it. Um, so basically there wasn't really uh, a commercial place for it. And so that's why these genres exist. And so when we talk about old time music, mm-hmm. um, 
it's still mostly associated with poor white yeah. Appalachian Southerners. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it would also, in theory at least, be less segregated because that would be in the pre- Segregation. <laughs> the pre-bluegrass era. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. That's very uh, interesting. It, yeah, it's really depressing because, like, in naturally, those strains of music should never have diverged. The only reason they diverged was because of marketing. Marketing, right. Marketing once again rearing its uglier head into our yeah. discussion. And so do you see Musicals and films is... should have not been separated before all of this. You see why one. marketing is a lie. <laughs> it's That's... a lie that turns into a truth, you know, because it's like bluegrass wasn't originally its own thing, but it became its own thing so much that it's almost kind of uh, insane to think of like bluegrass and blues as having like basically the exact same origin story yeah. and coming from the same place, that's, you know, geographically. Yeah, I didn't know. Uh, moving on, the movie was one of the first to extensively use digital color correction to give the film an autumnal sepia tinted look. Uh, that's the first thing I remember about this film is that it was mm-hmm. very widely hailed as the first. Uh, we call it DI. We call it in the industry DI, uh, which is a digital color-rated. intermediate. Yeah, it's super, super color corrected. I think it's the first. Yeah, I remember that as like the first popular film that did it. It does look pretty cool, though, still like those, I think those it golden does. I mean, fields I think it's and like, stuff. I could see people being like, this is way too much because it almost looks cartoony. But yeah. I think like I like that it looks cartoony, you know, for the same reason that I like that Moulin Rouge looks cartoony. Yeah, I think, you know, the stylism making it feel unreal makes the film film as a whole work better. I agree. Uh, though receiving mixed to positive reviews upon release, the film is most remembered for its soundtrack. Produced by T-Bone, True Detective only had one decent season, Burnett. 100% agree. Hard agree. <laughs> we, we did it. We agreed on something. Hard agree. <laughs> uh, anyway, the soundtrack is still one of the, of the best-selling country music albums of this century, ultimately going eight times platinum. If I remember correctly, it's a bunch of Alison Krauss songs, right? It's two Alison Krauss songs. Oh, for some reason, I felt like there's like, there, maybe every Spotify playlist I find of this just like puts in a bunch of her songs in it. And I just assume it's part of yeah. it. Yeah. Actually, no, I think there's there's three or four, but you know, it's like 18 songs. So Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, won a ton of Grammys, including Best Male Country Vocal for Ralph Stanley's Acapella, O Death, and also Album of the Year Award, only the second soundtrack to ever do so, which leads to my first question, which is what's the other soundtrack to have won? But Saturday Night Fever. Oh shit! Okay, and the bodyguard. So that uh, that is wrong. It's the third. <laughs> All right. The bodyguard deserved it. Let's be real. Uh, but yeah, so uh, it, it's it's apparently the third. Whatever sound, whatever shitty listicle website I got that from was lying. It's Lies. Saturday yeah, first Saturday Night Fever and the bodyguard uh, also won. Okay, uh, it single handedly reignited a huge interest in southern folk music as well as some attempts to recreate its success. Cold Mountain did something similar with its soundtrack. I saw that movie in the theater, and I think I fell asleep, and I never watched it again. <laughs> well, you, you, weren't, you weren't compelled by Jude Law's southern accent and Nicole <laughs> Kidman's even worse southern accent? Was it a bad movie? I literally have no idea. I couldn't tell you anything that happened. I think it's a bad movie. I just, like... It's kind of a like, do we need this? You yeah. know, it's a, it's a civil war. You know, it's a movie about white people, romance between like a Southern belle and a Confederate deser- deserter, you know, and yeah. it's, it's you know, sort of like, uh, sure. do we need this? Yeah. yeah. I did like the soundtrack, though. I liked it a lot. It actually introduced me to uh, a couple of like uh, folk singers and this whole concept of uh, Northern Roots music. Um, that was the only... Um, uh, soundtrack that I can remember that made use of uh, another um, southern staple, which is uh, called um, shape note singing. Yeah, 
Uh, and uh, God I damn, I Lindsay, I think we need to start a second <laughs> podcast where you just talk about like Southern music. This is awesome. I didn't know you knew this yeah. much. Well, yeah, actually, because that, that's why I'm like this. This the soundtrack means a lot to me because it, like I actually did end up studying it a little bit uh, at, at college. Um, oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, yeah, because oh. uh, uh, at the Irish department at <laughs> NYU, the Irish co- department. Yeah, I have a minor in Irish studies, sir. I, I thought you knew this. me. No, I didn't know that I at all. You kn- I thought you knew me. <laughs> but yeah, the Irish studies department at NYU had had a, had like a big crossover with like the folk music department. So I took a couple classes that was, uh, you know, like obviously like the Irish music department. Um, or rather, Irish music is a huge influence on uh, Southern Mountain music as well, mm. um, and vice versa. Because obviously, they stole our banjo too. <laughs> Every, all these motherfuckers stealing our banjos, taking it from us. Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't know this. This episode is filled with surprises so far. Holy shit! All right, I'm like, I what's going to happen hidden, by the end of it? Oh my god! Hidden deaths. I'm going to I'm going to pull out the banjo and be like, surprise! <laughs> the whole second half should just be us singing songs, yeah, like yeah. instead of reviewing uh, the movie. I'll, I'll, I'll just be like my accordion and be like. Did did you know that the accordion is also a traditional Southern? Like, it's German. Okay, the but Yankees be- <laughs> stole it from us. But beyond introducing a new audience, the soundtrack led the charge of folk and bluegrass music back into the mainstream. You can pretty much trace a straight line from the Oh Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack to the later success of artists like Mumford and Sons, the Avett Brothers, and the Lumineers, who would hit their peak in popularity about five to ten years later. Uh, the Peasall sisters, who did the singing voice of the little Warvy gals, went on to have bluegrass careers of their own. Uh, A-word, copyright, nightmare, tangent, this is related, believe it or not. Oh, A-word as in what we did? Yeah. Oh, okay. So do you, do you remember that song? On My Own, whatever, the one that yeah. you're playing the piano? Yeah. Oh, God. Okay. So- we had so- <laughs> fuck. All right. So, oh, yeah. for, so for reference... <laughs> We, we, in the documentary that we made many years ago, Lindsay's singing the song very beautifully with her father on the piano, and it's some old. I, I, we, my, the other we producer thought and I, it was a folk song. Yeah, we, we thought, thought it was, was a hymn. Yeah, we thought it was a hymn that was like you know uh, th- that wasn't a copyright issue, and we found yeah, out in the last because I knew the ver- the version of that song that I knew I knew from these uh, this folk group, the Pizel Sisters, mm-hmm. who became famous from the Oh Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack. So that was how I knew that song, and I very understandably thought that this is a hymn. It is in the public domain. And I, I mean, honestly, to be fair, to fair, that was our, we should have, that's what your producer's job is. Like that was the first thing we ever produced. Like we should have just done like a 30 second search to see if this was public domain or not. And we, yeah, we just assumed that it was. And we found out that not only was it not in the public domain, the man who wrote it was still alive. Yeah. And he was like 90. So did you did you reach out? Because you had to tell him not only like, hey, can we use this in our documentary about abortion? 90-year-old man <laughs> <laughs> who sings songs about God. I Honest to God, because the reason why this was crazy was because we were like basically sound. I think we were sound mixing. We had yeah, locked it the was film. Really Really, really late in the game. It was way too late because if not, you were to take it out, I think it's just like yeah. It was like one of the professors was like you cleared this song, right? We were like, why do we need to? It's in the public domain, and they're like, are you sure? <laughs> I, I honest to God do not remember if we had to pay or like a small fee. I yeah, think we, we did, did have okay. to pay. He, yeah, we you negotiated down. It was five hundred dollars. Um, yes, that's right. And yeah, so you negotiated. It was just honestly like I was kind of floored because I was like. There's no way that this guy is going to let us use his song because this this is a movie about how abortion is fine, actually. And he must not have told him. No, we were were going with like a different angle. We were like, it's like a post-abortive. It was like a, what did I call it? I was calling it a collage at one point. It's about sadness. Yeah, I I think I was, depending on who we talked to. Women being sad about their abortions. (laughs) 
they're trying to deal with it and then reaching out to different people to make sense of it is sort of how I was pitching it to people. Depend yeah. again, depending on who we were talking to. Yeah, that's so the that's... job of producer, by the way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> tell the people what they want to hear, so you can get your five hundred dollar rights to use your song. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, sucker. That's so funny, but yeah, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, that was a thank you for that throwback. We're tripped down memory lane of anxiety. Uh, <laughs> but okay, reading articles of the soundtrack is pretty funny because they go on and on about wow, the music sure is an integral part to the plot. Wow, the characters should do sing most of the songs, but all stop short of calling it a musical. Rolling Stone had an article critical of the soundtrack in 2020, but it was behind a paywall, so we unfortunately will never know what it was about. <laughs> I'm not paying. Sorry, Rolling Stone. <laughs> if you wanted Rolling me to be respected, yeah, if you wanted me to take your take seriously, you shouldn't have put it behind a paywall. Uh, it took issue with the authenticity, but although I didn't read the paywalled article, I have thoughts with a capital T. That was Lindsay has thoughts, not me. That's, yeah. that, that's me channeling well, your. Yeah, that's that's you semi land mining. <laughs> OK, do you know how you know how like white people in the north and I guess California do this thing where they like list their like percentages of like I am 25 percent English. I'm I remember, I remember that German. more being a thing when we were growing up, but I feel like I haven't heard that. Oh, as yeah, much. I mean, people yeah. people don't do that anymore. But like yeah. it's I, it was it's a thing that white people in the north do and it's something in the south we do not do uh because we don't know um mm, okay. and you know sort of like if you're black you you know i don't know slaves and then we weren't and uh if you're white your family has probably been in the you know region for so long that it's just completely irrelevant mm. and so i don't actually know what i am i have no clue um, because my family has been in that region for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, so my grandfather, uh, it's, it's funny cause like it's, it's a sort of mixed civil war legacy region because it's not a slaveholding region. Mm-hmm. It's mountain, it's the mountains, you, you know, it's not because we're better. It's because you can't really grow cotton in the mountains. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so my, you know, mother's side, uh, it was union and my father's side was Confederate. Um, and like, and they're sort of those Virginia motherfuckers, but like, Some so my Romeo mother's and side. Julia shit going on right there. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> not, yeah. It's, it's funny. Cause like the, it's like the, it's, it's the Virginia side that were the Confederates. And then they moved to Tennessee and like changed their names. And like, <laughs> we're like, we don't talk about that. Uh, <laughs> what but, is it in like, 30 Rock where he's like a bunch of sheep farm or mud farmers and big rapists? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what I always think of. Yeah. So, um. So so it's sort of it, it's it's interesting when I think about how uh, long you know my family has been in this in the in the area. Uh, at the time that this movie came out, it's not really something I thought about. Mm-hmm. So my father, uh, his side were the ones that are actually musicians, and uh, so um, my dad was actually a bluegrass musician. Yeah. Um, but uh, by that point, he was kind of over it. He'd like moved on to piano, um, and uh, so He's a great like, piano this, player too. Yeah, even like when uh, uh, the one time you actually saw him play piano, he yeah. was pretty, pretty far along, uh, like late stage, not late stage Parkinson's, but later stage Parkinson's. Yeah. Um, and he could still play he's pretty still well. Fucking, yeah, he was. He went at it. It was pretty impressive. Yeah. That this soundtrack was just sort of like a, oh, these songs weren't made up, you know, mm-hmm. for this movie. And it was it was sort of like a heritage a con- kind it, of throwback. Well, it was, it was like the first kind of, you know, sense of connection that my teenage self could make with like, oh, a you know, actually having curiosity. Thing. Yeah, that's yeah, cool. Just, it actually kind of sparked the curiosity, which is because the thing is like in that area, like especially because like it was like the upper middle class white liberals mm-hmm. um, that crawl out of the white trash hole. And I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> 
because uh, <laughs> obviously my I my, I come from 100% pure, you know, cocaine grade white trash. Like it's just it's like it's the pure powder stuff with your cheap bag. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You look like a rube. You're just a I am, rube. I am a rube, Hannibal. <laughs> Thanks for noticing. And I do wear Evian skin cream, <laughs> but not today. <laughs> um, but the same is true on, on, on like my mom's side, too. They weren't uh, musicians, but um, that was also how I learned that these songs in this movie weren't just like folk songs. They were super popular in the mm-hmm. 1920s and 30s. They were like the pop songs of the region. And if you lived outside of that region, you wouldn't know that. Um, so I think that's just another thing about this film is it's like incredibly well researched. I'm going I'm to give credit to T-Bone on this one. Music historians like were involved. Uh, you know, a lot of effort clearly mm-hmm. went into not just like the research, but like the music that was chosen. But, you know, hashtag problematic faves. I think it was like a really, you know, accurate and well-researched portrait of, again, that white side of the South, the bluegrass side. Mm-hmm. But as you'll see, like the black side is is not represented not thoroughly researched or represented. <laughs> at all. <laughs> like, okay. There's a couple songs in there. Uh, like you said, the one with the um, the blues guy singing yeah. by the fire. Ding, 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 ding. Uh, but I, I think it's like there are two, the, per, the first two tracks in the movie are um, actual uh, period songs from the 1930. 19- uh, 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm. Um, and the very first song is, it's called Poe Lazarus. And um, he's a dangerous man. Lord, Lord, he's a man. Yeah, it's a chain gang, all black, every single one of them. And they're singing this song. And then it cuts to our three leads, all white. <laughs> like, <laughs> and it's just sort of like, wait a minute. <laughs> sir, sir. I have I have a few questions, <laughs> sir. <laughs> S- sir. <laughs> so yeah, but again, like I said, it's a you know it's a very you know well researched portrait of what yeah. like southern like old time music was at the time. Not because the black side didn't exist; it just didn't exist in a commercial form. People mm. weren't selling it. At least if they were selling it, they were selling it sort of like in underground black communities. They weren't making it onto mainstream radio stations. That's cool, man. I'm I'm excited to watch this. I feel like you've given me more so than anything else. You, you've given me a really interesting context to think about this. And I like that it's something that's like special to you and something that like sort of sparked an interest in your heritage. I think that's a cool, yeah, that's can, a cool angle. T- finally, I could talk about my Celtic history music <laughs> class, my Celtic music history class. <laughs> no, I dig it. I, I'm into it. I've, like I said, obviously I've seen it, but I, I barely remember it. So it'll, it'll be fun to sort of think about it with yeah, all this stuff. Yeah, it'll be stuff. fun. Especially like thinking about it in context of a musical, I think it will surprise you how much of it is uh, in song form, and you know that the the clan has a literal song and dance number. It's a good one too. Okay, <laughs> awesome. Um, well, I think we're about half an hour. We should probably go to our commercial All break. Right, let's do it. To so go to a new ad read. And it's then, a good. Uh, it's a good one. It's a good yeah. one this week. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Curiosity Stream a subscription streaming service with thousands of documentaries and nonfiction titles, such as the Moose movie, which is about moose? You see, for some reason, we don't refer to multiple moose as mooses or mice or even meese, which makes no sense to me. But unlike the English language, the Moose movie is coherent and easy to follow. You can also get access to our streaming video service Nebula when you sign up for CuriosityStream using our code at curiositystream.com slash musicalsplaining. 
The Streamy Award-nominated Nebula is a video streaming platform built by and for creators. Not saboteurs, vandals, or wasters. They come with fire. They come with axes. Gnawing, biting, breaking, hacking, burning. Destroyers and usurpers. Curse them! So why do I need Nebula if I've already got Curiosity Stream? What? You're suddenly satisfied with just having one platform? This is not the way. Besides, Curiosity Stream is all about big budget non-fiction videos and Nebula is a place for smaller, independent education type creators to try out new ideas that might not work out on YouTube. With Nebula, you can see original, my apologies to Martin Scorsese, content from creators like Legal Eagle, Sarah Zed, and one Lindsay Ellis. So you can get Curiosity Stream and Nebula for only $2.99 a month or $15 for the full year by visiting curiositystream.com slash musicalsplaining. Once you use the code, you'll get a welcome email from Nebula giving you access to the goods. All right. We are back with that angel band Ooh. all coming around uh, me stand. I, that, what? This, this, I didn't. I didn't write it. Like, <laughs> I don't actually know who did. I don't know if anyone knows who did. I think that one's a, a hymnon. I think a lot of these songs in the movie tend to be no. No one's sure exactly where they came from. Exactly, but that's the great thing about using a bunch of songs in the public domain is you don't really have to check or pay anybody. Yes. Um, the first observation I just wanted to share with you that I think you're very proud of me for, or that you will be, is that this is a jukebox musical. I noticed. Woo! I was very proud of myself for noticing The book of the musical. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it was a jukebox musical. So uh, before we get into it, let's recap the um, loose plot of Oh Brother or Art Thou, Joel and Ethan Cohen's fifth or 15th or 25th movie. I don't know. They've made a... (laughs) They've made them. They've made that many. year. In 19- yeah, that, it, was, it was like their 18th movie that year. Uh, so it is the story of um, an escaped prisoner named uh, Ulysses Everett McGill, uh, who plays our loose Odysseus in this retelling of the Odyssey. Effectively, his story is dragging his his buds, his prison buds, along in this quest to dig up a treasure, which mm-hmm. he uh, or treasure which totally as they exists. Say. <laughs> yes, as a tr- he he got to get the treasure. Treasure. That they um that totally exists. Uh and they've got to get to it. Uh they've got like three days because uh, in three days the TVA is going to flood. The metaphor for the modern world is yes. going to flood the valley where uh his house once was. And um hijinks ensue. It is actually very similar to the Wizard of Oz in terms of structure. Uh more is the Wizard okay. of Oz the book. You know, because it is very like uh, we land in this magical world. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, it is structured like the Odyssey because the Odyssey, you know, Homer wasn't really thinking in terms of like, you know, Joseph Campbell hero's journey. He was like, you know, it wasn't act one, act two, act three. It's like, OK, our boy does this thing and then our boy does this it's thing and episodic, then our boy does this yeah. thing. Yes. Yeah, so it's a very episodic movie. Um, some of the episodes have songs, some don't. And I guess we, we will get into like the way it is structured uh, in a bit. But um, so effectively, uh his real quest is to win back the love of his life, uh, Penelope, who in this movie is Penny, yeah, and Holly played Hunter. by Holly Hunter, yep, um, who whom also we stand, um, <laughs> like like who doesn't Tim, stand Tim, Holly Hunter. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, uh, is that I, even like a I thing? Mean, Do you stand Holly, or you just accept her as a fact? Uh, yeah, this is, is it like it's something like saying we stand oxygen. Yeah. Like, oh, we course. love share. Like, yeah, yeah. no shit, bro. <laughs> 
Oh yeah, you know who's great? Dolly Parton. Yeah. Uh, she's like, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> edgy. Now we need to return to uh, this original question of, is this a musical slash what makes a musical? And I guess spoilers, we did uh, pre-discuss this a little bit for the sake of cohesion. Yes, I was, <laughs> I was having it's difficulty. A real, surprisingly, yeah, it was a surprisingly complicated <laughs> question to answer. <laughs> it really, you know what I felt like? I felt like, as you would say, there's like, there's the two genders. There's like the, there's a musical, which is like, it's got the I want song where people are like, I'm declaring the thing that I want. And then there's the more subtle, like non- musical movies that might have people playing songs in them, but that aren't necessarily part of the plot. And then it's suddenly in that gray area is where I got totally lost. And I was like, based on what I watched in the movie, I was like, all of a sudden, I don't understand anything. I don't know what musicals are. I don't know what movies are. I was okay. like having a bit so of a I guess, panic I guess in, in full disclosure, uh, <laughs> we had a we had a very long discussion about this before we start to, uh, started recording, where I think both of us got really frustrated. Uh, <laughs> where, uh, I guess, okay, so I guess like the long and short of it would be like, Javi would be like, it didn't feel like a musical to me because it did this or it yeah. didn't do this. And then immediately I would retort with, well, but this movie does this or doesn't do this. And he's like, well, I haven't seen but that movie. I haven't movie. seen those movies. And then so I'd be harder. like, okay. Yeah. And so then like, we just have to move on and he'd have to take my word for it. Um, Which I always but on do. The, yeah. <laughs> the, the other, um, I guess analogy we came up with, or I guess I came up with, mm -hmm. he's nowhere near as problematic as I am is sort of like the, the criteria of personality disorders in the DSM. Yes, that's right. Uh, where it's just like you can uh, have uh, qualities traits, of a right. traits of a personality disorder, but not actually qualify for a diagnosis because yes. you don't have uh, as many that it require or as too high a degree as it requires. <laughs> so this movie is not full blown psychopath, which is what I was expecting. So it's got mm -hmm. more, you know, tra psychopathic traits. But, but I would argue that it is a full blown. Right. Psychopath. You think it's full psychopath. But to me, I was like, so that was sort and of I, I feel like I should note that many people have asked me not to use that term. I hear you. I, I'm just ignoring it's you. Okay. And I disagree with you. I'm sorry. It's a medical term. I don't know what to say. Yes. No. So so one of the songs that was interesting that we sort of pre-discussed was Man of Constant Sorrow, right? Where I was like, mm -hmm. well. Right. Well, we were discussing like the, uh, is this an I want song? Right, right, right. We were like, it is an I want song. And I'm like, yeah, but he's in the recording booth and he's recording and it's it's like a scene. So it's not mm -hmm. really like a musical number. Even right. Though, and then and immediately it, I can like, be like, it is a musical okay, number. Yeah. Do you know what our other favorite? movie slash musical that has the big I want song on the stage. Oh, is it? Uh, I don't know. Which one? Phantom? It's, it's Phantom. Yeah. Phantom has got the show think within a show. Think <laughs> of me fondly. That's, it's weird. That's, yeah. Listen, this is, this is slippery slope. It's slippery territory here. That's why I was like. Yeah. The same was, thing happens in Cabaret, which again, like, because that's another weird thing where I'm like, I try not to talk about Cabaret because like the movie Cabaret and the musical Cabaret are so different. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the movie Cabaret, I respect in the way that, like, I respect uh, Chris Nolan. like Conceptually, you, know? you understand what he's doing, yeah, but it's I'm unenjoyable like, I get what to watch people it. See in it. Yeah, yeah, I'm like, I get what people see in it, not for me. Yeah. Um, except for Liza Minnelli, whom, again, we stand. We always love um, her. Yeah, it's like, honestly, one of the greatest, you know, film performances of all time is Liza Minnelli and Cabaret. But, like, comparing that to um, the stage musical, like, to me, I'm like, the stage musical is just by far the better version of that story, which is a much more conventional musical. It mm -hmm. is, you know, it's more like Phantom in that it has, like, both diegetic elements and non-diegetic elements and detour 
To re okay, so I feel like I forget if we've have we had this discussion about uh, diegesis and non-diegesis in this on the podcast. show. We've talked about it a little bit, I think, like one, okay. one of our earlier episodes. But you so know. when we say, uh, um, I, I if you've seen my episode on the Phantom of the Opera, Joel Schumacher movie, um, I talk about this at some depth, which I have not but, seen, like, unfortunately. Yeah, seen I know, weird. I wouldn't have to be repeating this if he had, but you know, it's good. <laughs> it's a good thing you haven't. So, so basically, traditionally, um, musical numbers in musicals are considered non-diegetic. So they uh, basically, they're, they're metaphorical, but sometimes they are diegetic. And I feel like a good example of where it's about half and half is, uh, well, Moulin Rouge is a good one. Um, Phantom of the Opera is a good one. Generally, any musical where there's a show within a show will be a good example of a, uh, a musical where it's about half and half. And sometimes, like the two examples I used in that video were um, Chicago and Cabaret, where sometimes they're completely diegetic. Cabaret is an example of that. Whenever there's a musical number, it cuts back to the cabaret to a to the actual um, stage of them. Yeah, to it. the actual stage where they are um, literally performing a musical number that is mm-hmm. thematically related to whatever is happening in the story. And then Chicago goes like way hard on the other end, where it's just like more or less a conventional movie yeah. that is cut with these like metaphorical musical numbers. Yeah, that, these like, like set reflect. pieces, kind of. Yeah, exactly. So I guess that's part of where it's kind of hard to. It's like obviously both of those examples are like considered unequivocally musicals. Mm-hmm. And so the examples in O Brother or Art Thou also kind of split the difference where most of them are diegetic, but quite a few are non-diegetic. And, you know, unambiguously so. Th- that's the thing, though, is like I this is what I was having trouble trying to articulate, which eventually I did was able to get to it. I'm like man of constant sorrow. Right. The way it's shot, at least like using filmic language, it does not have mm-hmm. this heightened reality or this thing that sort of like takes you out of what the story is to sort of show off that this is a song that he's singing. Like what you were talking about with Chicago, I always think of somebody like singing to the camera, sort of, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And like, so it doesn't like, feel it like, like a, it like, it like whoom cuts. And right. then you're like, he, he's like running through a field, like right. four, yeah. six long years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like but instead it like focuses on the recording of the song, which is like the literal plot point that's happening. But, but that's, what's interesting about it too, right? Is like that, like you said, that is his, I want song, but it's still like a sort of plot point and it's diegetic. So it's sort of, it yeah. totally and fucking throws framed, me off. Yeah, it's framed as a plot point because it's like, he's singing the song. And then as he's singing it, you're seeing the record actually being recorded. And that's going to basically be their like claim to fame later. And you may learn to love another while I am sleeping in my grave. Which actually, here's one like minor question I had, which is not really answered in the film, but it, are these like is that meant to be a song that they just know? And that they're re-recording, or is that a song that they sort of wrote together in the moment, in this, in the sort of logic of the film? Because um, I, I just assumed know. it was something that they had, that it was like some sort of standard at that point that they knew, and they're just doing a new recording of it. But I don't know. I think uh, I actually have the Wikipedia page pulled up right now <laughs> of "Man of Constant Sorrow," which is written um, nineteen thirteen-ish. Yeah. Uh, or at least it was written down. It was probably right. like you know, there's folk versions of it that are like 10, 20 million years old. <laughs> and it was actually recorded in 1927 for the first time. Yeah, the quote, apparently there was a version dated as far back as 1950. Hymns of the 1800s suggesting oh, similarity to songs such old. as 
tender-hearted Christians, <laughs> Judgment Hymn, and other songs such as Christ Suffering. <laughs> All um, upbeat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, there's a theme here. So apparently there was a 1927 version, which was the first biggie. There was another biggie, biggie in 1950. So yeah, it, it was. It would have been considered a standard. Uh, but we, the modern audience, don't really know that. So is that, in the, and this is, again, this is splitting hairs, but I'm like, does that make it his I want song if it's like a... I guess no. You know what? I answered my own question because we watched other movies. Disregard. I just realized. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. would argue it does because a lot of times it's just like it won't be what's literal. It's what's thematic. Right, and I right, think right. that's why they chose that song is yeah. it is literally his uh, story arc. Yeah. And also, you know, the fact that it does. It has a reprise. Yes, <laughs> it does. Many times. Both music. Or it's also hinted at the beginning, I think, when they're at the. Uh, when they're on the dude with the the pushy cart thing, mm, they're yeah, playing yeah, yeah. the sort of the acoustic version of it there. Yeah, it's is, it's a it's a motif. It's a motif, if you will. Yeah, what but flows. no, that 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 was the first. That was the that scene is like that's like the crux of the movie, and it's the crux of a lot of what you're talking about before we recorded too, mm-hmm. in terms of something being commercial or non-commercial or what kind of play that they would put on the radio versus what they won't play. Right. Yeah. 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 That whole movie, and that's we'll, the scene. We'll, we'll I get into yeah. that. As far as the question goes, I still sort of, I see the point. I see the argument. I think it's valid as far as it being a musical. I wouldn't in my own head, based on the, however many musicals I've watched for this show so far. Right, well, I, well, let's, let's, let's circle back. Like what about this movie that you do feel is missing that you see in other musicals, even if proportionally it has like more or less the same number of diegetic numbers or non-diegetic numbers or, you know, just basically any musical number of any kind. Um, it's, it's more, like I said before, like the idea that I feel like when I watch a lot of musicals, right, there tends to be like this, everything stops and it's almost expository in, in my, I guess is my feeling about it. I, I can't like give you 50 examples off the top of my head of like this, this, mm-hmm. and this. But to me, generally speaking, the musicals tend to feel like they're going to stop. They're going to put on a set piece. And then that's the thing that you're sort of having fun with. And then it's sort of the song plays in completion and then it comes to an end and then they sort of move on with the story. A lot of this mm-hmm. didn't feel like as much of that. So and it yeah, feels but- like to the Coen brothers, like I mean, this is like a back end a compliment to them in this case. But like the storytelling is just very smooth. And so it never bumps for me at any point. So I just sort of like watch 50 minutes of it. I was like, oh, I guess I realized there was like five songs here, but I didn't register yeah. them because I just registered so that them was as, another thing, like the, the first time we, yeah. the first time we talked about this he's like there's like an hour change where there's no songs I'm like no there very much is not like, <laughs> like it's it's too it's almost too subtle for me to register I think is what it is it's like I just I just because well, a lot of times up. there will be dialogue over it yeah uh, there, it, it, a lot of times it plays like a conventional soundtrack yeah um I guess to me the the thing that really trips me is the fact that I think that the reason why this is totally on T musical for me is because I think that that is deliberate. I think it is like sort of the, the frog in water metaphor. Uh, because okay. if you, you know, the first half an hour is fairly conventional, you know, like it starts with this uh, chain gang, this very racially loaded, like, <laughs> like very straight, honestly, like that was a choice. No. I don't, I, yeah. I don't, I don't know why they did that yeah. because like, it's a, it's a, it's a chain gang. They're all black. And they're singing this black, uh, you know, spiritual called Poe Lazarus. Poe Lazarus. Then it cuts to uh, 
George Clooney, John Turturro, and Tim Blake Nelson escaping like, the Jane Gang. We're leaving here. Bye. <laughs> and it's yeah, sort of. That's like my sir, sir. Um, <laughs> I have some questions. So it's uh, in after that. Uh, there isn't a whole lot, and then it sort of starts to pick up. Like um, you know, they have the down in the river to pray, man, man of constant sorrow, sorrow, and then yeah. the siren song, and then after that, it sort of becomes more and more. Uh, there's a hard more time consistent. killing blues in there too, as well. But, yeah, exactly. So there's I a guess couple that one of them is a little the- more filmic a little more conventional like you'd see that in a normal non-musical movie like where some guys just picking at you know just singing a song in a campfire and then they're doing dialogue over it but then so even when they're playing uh which i always confuse the two so keep on the sunny side yeah keep on the sunny side is homer's song right they're playing music yeah but does that for you constitute as musical because to me that's just them watching people play a show there's a dark and a troubled Because like keep on the sunny side actually pops up a uh, couple times, three times, yeah. three times, like once on the soundtrack, but three times in the movie. The first time you see it is where Homer Stoke, who is our Donald Trump analog, mm-hmm. and that was another no- note I had was like this the the political campaign in this movie bears like haunting similarities oh, yeah. to the ele- election of twenty sixteen. They're, they're both very Trumpy though. I thought especially when like Pappy <laughs> tries well, no, to. I, Pardon well, I them. Like, I was like, oh, it's like Little Wayne, where he's just trying to like yeah. basically well, gain I feel like favor. Happy is sort of like the like you know fluffy like fat incumbent. They're the Democrats, right? <laughs> They'll just say whatever. <laughs> and uh, you know, Homer Stokes is like the Nazi reform candidate. Right. So that's why he's popular. He's a literal populist. Um, and so like his his theme song is "Keep on the Sunny Side of Life." Yeah. Whereas apparently Pappy O'Donnell's theme song is "You Are My Sunshine," which is, you know. I guess the same thing, but more well known. Um, so the first time you see Keep on the Sunny Side is like sort of in one of his commercial uh, like trucks riding by, and then you hear it as a background song, and then you hear um, some actual people uh, playing, playing it, it yeah. during one of his uh, campaign rallies. The other part of it is You Are My Sunshine being Pappy's song, right? Right. So we, we skipped a song. So they're, they're listening to it on the radio when he when they first break out and they go to, uh, what's Pete? Is that Torturo's name in the movie? I think it's Pete. When they mm-hmm. go to his cousin's house. But that's just, again, to me. So would you qualify that as part of the musical part? Because to me, that was just like, well, they're just listening to music on the radio. I mean, I would because it, it, it gets reprised later. Okay, so the fact that it's reprise sort of is a bigger part for you. That's interesting because I hadn't thought of that. So I'm just trying to talk through like all the reasons where I was like, oh, I didn't register like half the songs. To me, I was just like, I've seen this movie so many times that I feel like every little element, like especially musical element, it's always a setup and a payoff. And maybe that is not necessarily true for the story, mm-hmm. but like for the aesthetics and especially for the music, it is like, it's, it's almost like you could take the visuals and the story out and just tell a story, like just with the way they uh, structure the music. Yeah, um, definitely. Like to me, I guess that's why this movie feels so like unique. Yes. Uh, in the way that it uses music that uh, it didn't write. Um, and especially as, as you noted, is so preoccupied with death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which it very much is. <laughs> which I didn't know, and that was the other thing too. I was like, as you're you're a southerner, so you can sort of tell me this. I'm like, is was this like a deliberate choice 
to choose a bunch of songs that were thematically death? Or is this just like I would a, think that they like just kind of were choosing songs and choosing songs. And then eventually it was just like, holy shit. Oh, shit every, single one of these, <laughs> every single one of these songs are about death. Yeah. I, I wasn't sure if that was like a Southern religious hymn kind of like churchy thing that just it permeates is. into everything as well. It so I was like, very I much know. is like, uh, let me let me pull up the original lyrics to You Are My Sunshine, which are not in the movie. So You Are My Sunshine, I guess, is like the ur-Southern traditional. Um, and if you live in the United States, you've probably heard it, right? Yeah, for sure. Like, it's just like a happy song you sing to kids, right? Because mm-hmm. it's You Are My Sunshine, You Are My, You Make Me Happy. And so when you listen to the verses, um, it's about like this person that I'm singing to is dead. Yeah. Basically. Uh, oh, I thought, the, I always thought it was like they're dead to me. Because like they've moved be. on to another person. And, like, yeah, I mean, it really them. could be. Because like yeah. there's one verse that says like, I dreamed I held you in my arms, but when I woke, dear, I was mistaken. So I bowed my head and cried. Yeah. So it could be either she left me or she's dead. Yeah. And um, the second one is <laughs> now you've left me to love another. You've shattered all my dreams. And that's how the second verse ends. Sure. Um, and I feel like there are other traditional verses that are, I can't find. This is the Johnny Cash version. And there are other versions that are like even darker. So around. yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like, cause that was the, one of the songs that my mother sang to me every night as mm. a like three-year-old. The whole song um, or just like the chorusy part? I think just the cute ones. Yeah. It's <laughs> like a nursery rhyme almost. Is yeah. It yeah. I guess like in the, in the South, it almost kind of is that. And then like you grow up and you learn like the, oh, it's about like a, like have a guy getting cucked or like. <laughs> It's a breakup song, yeah. Yeah, it's it's like at best a breakup song. At worst, like my my love died young. Like they all kind of have this like, you know, sinister undertone, which I feel like might be a thing that like made people really interested in the soundtrack where it's just like people think of folk music as just the sort of like almost sort of not mindless, but like, you know, not very deep, not very challenging uh, type of music. It's just sort of like, you know, repeating whatever it is your you know culture says but whenever you like examine it you um, listen to it it's dark yeah it can be i guess textured i don't you know i don't want to say dark like some of it is like you know but a lot of the songs on this uh in this movie it slash on this album are like uh i like i'll fly away feels like um as a for instance Mm -hmm. a song that is like Sung by someone who's like got a terminal illness you know because it's like someone who's dying young (laughs) yeah (laughs) But it's but so this is sort of what we were talking about was like the songs sound so light, mm-hmm. you know they sound light. Uh, I mean, I guess this sort of plays into what we were talking about before yeah, yeah. in terms of like. What's and I think that's on what kind of trips play. people up is like yeah. you don't really listen to the lyrics and then you listen to the lyrics and it's like ooh, and it's not until you get some like "Man of Constant Sorrow" is like obviously you know about a man of constant sorrow, but then you get towards the end of the movie slash album and you get to "Oh Death," uh, which is sung. <laughs> <laughs> by the fucking KKK Grand Wizard. Yeah. Well, did, did you listen to the uh, uh, the album version? Death, I come to take the soul, leave the body and leave it cold. To drop the flesh off of the frame, the earth and worm both have a claim. Yeah, and that's like the album version sounds completely different from the movie version because the album version is completely a cappella. Oh, okay. And, you know, because the movie version is like got like these, you know, Wizard of Oz winkies going, whoa. Yeah, whoa. And, uh, but the album version was like the thing that got really, really popular and was a th- part of the reason why the album was so popular in the first place was because people were so haunted by this a cappella version of this song that Ralph Stanley did not long before he died. Mm-hmm. 
I guess like as, as as much as I kind of enjoy in a kitschy way this image of you know I mean okay maybe enjoy is strong because I like <laughs> I, like that that scene is really funny to me because of like this idea that the clan is doing like a recreational lynching you know <laughs> like where they're just no like, I mean it's it's meant to be hip, it's meant to be hypnotic right it's meant to be like a sort of I, I guess but like, it's just like it's hypnotic like an eyes and wide then he's shut like, kind of thing okay everyone yeah. we're against evolution and. <laughs> The Catholics. So that's why we're hanging a black now. We don't know what he did and we don't really care, but we're going to do it anyway because it's like our weird ritual. And it's sort of like a thing that I'm like, I ne- <laughs> sir, sir, <laughs> sir, that's not, that's not how it worked. <laughs> just chasing after it. Yeah, it's just because that's that's sort of a weird thing about making some, making a movie about something that like is close enough. It's like far away enough that you could like it does feel kind of fantastical, but it's close enough that you could be like it actually does matter why they did what they did because those people still use the same rationale yeah, to the oppress same logic. people. Yeah, yeah, and the thing is like the clan, especially in the 1930s, the clan operated differently in every little municipality. And uh, I don't know if that's still true today, and I don't really care. I guess it's sort of one of those weird things where I'm like, I feel like we actually, it, it is not the greatest thing to cartoonize why they did what they did, because maybe that ritual in its purest form doesn't exist anymore, but... Um, the rationale still kind of exists and we still see it a lot in like the internet. Well, this is similar to what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about Nazis, right? Yeah, in, yeah. In uh, Sound of Music where like, you know, this, I think Spielberg was the example that we used where we're like, they're almost cartoony and they're evil where you're like, yeah, yeah, nobody exactly. could really be like that. Like, oh, haha, that's crazy. That would never happen today. And yeah, exactly. So I have really mixed feelings it. on the clan scene because like, no, that makes sense. That's about, are you, the, I understand where you're coming from. Yeah. It's like on the one hand, it's there's a like, danger I, to it and making them I love laughable. the way it's framed. It's fun to watch. Yeah. Like it's one of my favorite musical numbers. It's a literal dance number. But on the other hand, it's like, not only does it make them look fun and badass, um, even if it does end with them like in the Bugs Bunny way being like buffooned of. It trivializes the danger beyond. I, I think, yeah, it's also kind of dishonest. And I feel like, I you know, I, I don't know if this is like a coming out moment because I think like everyone in the South probably has some clan ancestry. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, um, I mean, I can't, and then this is a weird thing. Like, I don't actually know if, uh, so my grandmother, um, after her father died, mm-hmm. uh, s- sort of like told this family like, hush hush tale of like her father mm-hmm. being in the clan but she never knew for sure because that was how they rolled how they like rolled, it, yeah. it was a secret society and she said that they always had like parades like literal parades um down like the main street of Johnson City Tennessee where you have been mm-hmm. like in the downtown area and she said that like as like a really young kid like eight, 10 years old. She's the only reason she knew it was him because she recognized his shoes. Oh, okay. And so like, they were so poor that like they each only had like, like one, one pair nice pair of shoes. Yeah. And so whenever they went to their clan rallies, they always wore their nice shoes. And, oh, um, that's terrifying. And, but like the other weird thing about like the the clan in the 20s and 30s was like they needed a like especially in a region like uh like tennessee and appalachia where there wasn't a huge black population Mm -hmm. you know they they needed a raison d'etre right besides like we got to keep the blacks down and so in in johnson city apparently they were much bigger on temperance than they were on, you know the black community because there just wasn't a huge black community to, to oppress 
yeah, oppressed. You got to branch so, out your oppression. <laughs> yeah. So they would like, if there was a known, uh, like drunk that beat his wife, he was much more likely to get like at the burning cross in his, uh, yard. I see. But it was like, yeah, I remember this like really kind of heartbreaking story my grandmother told me when she was like, it would have actually been exactly uh, around when this movie was set. She was like too young to understand uh, like segregation. Yeah. And she would have been like eight or nine or so. Johnson City wasn't, their downtown was like sort of poor in the way that like would have led to the creation of genres like bluegrass. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just like all the poor people were just shunted together. And, um, you know, black, white, so cool. Let's go make like, a like genre. A, yeah, let's make some music. Let's go party. Yeah, let's go party and make some music. Yeah. And so, like, at the time, like, in Appalachia, like, Jim Crow wasn't, like, so as embedded as it was in places like South Carolina because it just wasn't, like, you know, again, they weren't more moral. It just wasn't, like, slave country. Sure. They just didn't they just have, didn't like, have the legal system. Yeah, it just, yeah. it just, they didn't have the farmland. <laughs> yeah. just like, it's just, it was too mountainous. Um, and so, uh, she told me this story about like her neighbor who was like this little black girl who was like, um, about the same age. And then they would play together every day and every day. And then one day, and she doesn't remember what happened, but there was some clan thing that Ugh. happened. And then all of a sudden, you're not allowed to talk to her anymore. Bullshit. And then all of a sudden, uh, the black family had to move. Ugh. And she never found out why. And so that story, oh, God, when did she tell me that? I'm, I was probably like, like in high school, so this mm-hmm. was like 25 years ago. She yeah. died in 2005. Um, but that sort of thing has like stuck like, with me. Yeah. So it's like every time I like see this sort of thing, on the one hand, it's it's funny to buffoonerize the bad guys. But on the other hand, it's like, but they were still real. And I feel like, you know, we aren't really grappling with that because they turn themselves into such cartoons by dressing like that, you know? And I think yeah. that was part of the point, you know? The fact that, like, I don't actually know if my great-grandfather was in the clan because... He was hidden. Yeah, it was literally hidden. Like, it's just the only way I know is, like, my grandmother saying, we think it was him because we recognized his shoes. But we don't know for sure. But like you said, too, right? It's, yeah, I mean, they sort of even have this in the sh- in the movie, right? Where fucking mm. dude is literally like, oh, I'm the guy running for <clears throat> yeah, <laughs> the yeah, opposition yeah. to the governor. Right? And he's hidden in there. And there's, yeah, there's, there's Democrats. A, yeah. <laughs> but I just mean in terms of like how like the influence isn't just within that space with that one person that they're going to yeah, murder. Yeah. It's also like it goes up to the top of the state and just being like, hey, but I think that's another thing that really is funny to me about the way the movie ends is like I think it is very reassuring to the mainstream where so because the, the, the end of the movie takes place at uh, so Everett and his friends are like, they, you know, it's at like the end of act two. Mm-hmm. We've lost everything but you know i'm just gonna go make one last ploy to get my wife back and at the time they don't know that that record that we mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. has become like a top 40 hit in constant sorrow through his day so they lost everything but okay so you know, we're going to get up on stage and, you know, we're going to sing this song while Everett tries to get uh, his wife back. And then they start singing Man of Constant Sorrow and then the crowd goes wild yeah. and they hadn't realized that, oh, wow, this song became like a top 40 hit while we weren't looking. So then uh, you have the two like 
so of course their their guitarist Tommy is black, mm-hmm. and um, this is a uh, benefit for Homer Stokes, the Nazi, um, <laughs> and he's like, mm, I don't like this. But yeah. then the governor is also here trying to like you know poach his brain trust, like, ooh, but he's miscegenated. Well, I guess folks don't mind. He's <laughs> like, oh well, whatever. Yeah, and I just love this idea that they're just like. Oh, we were born into the system. Oh, I don't know. Ooh, no. How did this get here? How did this segregation get here? Ooh, ah, ooh. Well, I don't know. Maybe we should get rid of it. <laughs> and like, uh, like, you know, just this idea that like, I mean, in a weird way, there's some like truth to it. This idea that like, if you present consumers with a product that they want, they'll be like, okay, cool, whatever. They I don't, don't know care. what they want if you ask them, but if you show yeah, it to they're them, like, I like that you. song. Yeah. I don't care that there's a, you know, the band is integrated. But like on this, the other hand, it's just like everyone that is like decent in this movie is so innocent of the system of racism mm-hmm. that it's just sort of like, uh, I don't know. It, it makes sense to me as to why people like this movie. Let me put it that way. <laughs> makes them feel good. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's like, I didn't know there was this. Oh, I just, where did this Jim Crow come from? I don't know. So I'm, I'm not sure if we actually address this or not, but I, I wanted to ask you about the, to me that this was a movie about three songs, right? Right. It's about, you know, sunny side or, you know, back on the sunny mm-hmm. side, you are my sunshine, which are the two different anthems for each one of the candidates. And then the thing that ends up dividing them is constant sorrow. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so is so within the world of the movie, right? They're saying that constant sorrow is, is old, right? That's the old timey song. No, old timey is a genre. Okay. I wasn't sure if they meant that, that literally yeah, as no, well. I, I mentioned, that. Yeah. Cause like I, I, uh, that was what I was talking about in, um, uh, the first half as when we say old timey. Um, and I guess, cause that was back before they had this word bluegrass, which, uh, only really came into use in the 1940s. Um, but, uh, the, the, the term old timey is still used honestly kind of as a differentiation from bluegrass is sort of like this pre bluegrass folk music. Okay. Um, but yeah, when he says old timey, uh, what, what he means is like a genre that is more folk than bluegrass. It's a misleading um, title. <laughs> it's a misleading name. That's what it's called. Like it's still <laughs> called that. Like uh, it's it's honestly like because after I rewatched it this uh, this most recent time, I kind of went down a rabbit hole because um, uh, first of all, because I was like thinking like oh maybe I should do a real content about this because. Uh, I, uh, I feel you know, like you could, you got, you got some thoughts about it. <laughs> yeah, no, I've, I, I never have thoughts about anything, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but basically, cause like, I, I it's kind of weird once you learn about the history of why bluegrass and blues are two different genres. It's, it's, it's almost kind of like, you know, it's always kind of weird to learn that something that means something to you only exists because, because of, yeah. Of segregation and yeah. racism. And yeah. I think that's true of everything in the United States. Like, oh, no, this thing like, oh, rap only exists because of segregation. Oh, no. Yeah. Like, <laughs> mind blown. Spoiler alert. Uh, yeah, spoiler alert. But on the other hand, I feel like, um, I, I, you know, it's sort of like this erroneous mindset to go into it to think that bluegrass or, you know, the type of music that eventually became bluegrass is, you know, basically needs to be conceded to the whites, you know, like, uh, all right, fine. You guys get this one, you know, because like the truth is like, you know, there are still, um, you know, people like black people in the South and like all over the country really that are still, you know, still do that type of folk music, which, you know, is basically considered bluegrass. Uh, Actually, I found some, uh, as as I was like, yeah. So there, one of my, apparently one that had been like on my uh, Spotify, uh, for a little while, um, 
that I had listened to a bunch that I didn't even realize is a band called the Carolina Chocolate Drops. That sounds like an Delightful awesome name. Delightful names. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Another one uh, that is uh, New York based, we'll forgive them that, called the Ebony Hillbillies. And, Some good names. Uh, yeah, another one called Gangster Grass, which is exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> Gangster Grass. Yeah, so I feel like, like, yeah, especially Carolina Chocolate Drops is like, if you're into like Old Crow Medicine Show and that, that sort of aesthetic, you'd like them. Okay. Uh, but yeah, basically, like, I, I feel like it's not that there's just like a white version of bluegrass. It, it's just sort of like bluegrass is co-created by black people. It always has been, you sure. know, and I think everyone understands that like the banjo is not, you know, we did you know, white people, didn't, white people didn't buy didn't the banjo, it, yeah. or at least they didn't solely invent it. Yeah. It's like, you know, I, I feel like we're in this sort of like great cultural reckoning right now um, where we are like genuinely, yeah, like re-examining like, you yeah. know, the contributions of people of color. I guess I just feel like this one is particularly like, you know, relevant to me uh, yeah. because I, I, I feel like this one is a little bit under discussed because I don't see a lot of discourse about like, you know, bluegrass in particularly because in the cultural mindset, this is so white yeah. and it's just, you know, I guess sort of now it is, but like the genre itself, the sound, the instrumentation, it, it wasn't originally. Mm-hmm. And, um, I don't know. I, 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 I'd like to see more scholarship on that. I mean, I might do some more digging. I've been, you know, I encourage this. I think I yeah. speak for the audience when I say, Lindsay, make a content, go do a content. Uh, I hate the word, but you know, yeah, he just, he just, he just, he just did a, <laughs> not a gun. Some, he just, he just scratched his head. I scratched my face. I was not doing a thing. Just scratched his head at the word content. My, my greater point about like, uh, art and music resist segregation like segregation is unnatural to music wouldn't you agree yeah like there, you, can, you can't stop it you can try to segregate it but ultimately it will or just like creative thinking in general i would say yeah because i i think it's interesting that like this genre of music you know is just you know the brainchild of the poor folk of the south you know black and white and um the fact that it has literally been so whitewashed is just sort of you know, it's, it's unnatural to art and, um, you know, it bugs me. And so, uh, I don't know. I, I hope there's more scholarship on it. That's, that's something to think about. If you're, if you are from the South, which, you know, I guess is most of us, if you've been here for more than a generation or two, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a fun thing to kind of examine like heritage wise and to circle back to this question of, um, is it a musical or not, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, you know, maybe musical is like gender. It's not a binary. It's bimodal. <laughs> That's how it felt. That's what I'm saying. It's so a I was like, I was like, I have a very limited view of what a musical is. And this is the one that totally fucked with my perception of it. Oh, good, good. I'm, um, I'm, I'm glad we hurt your head some more. I'm going to I'm gonna be like yelling on Twitter, just be like, no, there's either a yeah. musical you're or there's be like, not a musical. It's either a musical or it's not. And then you're going to be yeah. doing a Brother Where Art Thou fan fucking, art in two weeks, yeah. like in Mike Mignola. What's the sign that she was putting up? Like fucking that crazy lady, the blonde one, just putting up signs of like, this is not a musical. Anyway, whatever. Uh, so yeah. the one we're question. We're going to see O Brother fan art. Yeah. <laughs> one last thing I wanted to ask you was, um, my perception of it based on all the songs that were sung, not all of them, but most of the songs that were sung and the tone of them is that does he die at the end, which is part of how I interpreted it, which is yeah, like, I had never considered that before. Cause he's, he's basically, he, I mean, I think obviously the floods, a giant metaphor for like, Oh, he's, he's confessed all of his sins and he's being baptized yeah. in the end. But 
it's like everything is a song about death. And then the last song that even plays is, is um, what was it? It was, it was angel band. Mm-hmm. So it's literally about yeah. like, Oh, an angel come take me. And then like, it, you could see it as like, he died and then, you know, he's living this sort of fantasy life of, oh, where he just goes on and he's with his children and he's with right. his wife and she complains about not having the ring, but that's still sort of how it goes for him. Well, I remember my read like way back in the day being very Greek um, and the, you know, the Christian tradition is very much about like this idea of like sin and repentance, but the Greek tradition is about um hubris and respect, mm-hmm. you know, and pride, which I guess is, is also very much there in the Christian oh, yeah. tradition. Yeah. And so I don't, I don't know how common this read of the Odyssey is, but to my memory, the read that the Coen brothers did of the Odyssey was basically this idea that like, you know, Everett's hubris was his problem more than anything. Yeah. And uh, with this uh, sheriff character being basically Poseidon, because Poseidon is his arch enemy mm-hmm. um, in the Odyssey. And it's only until he kind of admits that, you know, the gods are greater, that the gods have mercy on yeah. him, even though he has Athena in his corner. There's so many strong female characters in the Odyssey that this movie just completely wipes out. Just ignores out. them. Just completely ignores You got Athena, you got Circe. Circe doesn't even get like a name drop. And she's like a big deal in the odyssey she's like his bow lame missed opportunity yeah so you don't you don't have a strong feeling one way or another about that i i don't know i i guess that sort of thing when something is like deliberately ambiguous i like this idea that it's ambiguous Mm -hmm. you know i think i think you know it's just sort of like oh interesting point but i don't want to come down one way or the other but i think it's like that you bring it up at all is like Oh, yeah, maybe that was, like, where they meant to at least make you think that it was going. Yeah, because especially, like you were saying before, that the soundtrack tells the story in and of itself. So it's like... And not a lot happens after that. No, it's very quick. Yeah, it's just like, oh, we did it. Oh, we got the thing. Bye. Good night, you know. Because it's also, like, miraculously, everybody else is dead except for the four of them. And then he's like, oh, I found the ring because I just happened to be on that weird desk. And then... Yeah, yeah. So I was like, oh, this seems a bit fantastical. Not that the rest of it was, like, super weird in reality. could you could make a case that, like, they had this really slapdash ending that, like, is maybe a little bit metaphorical. And he did die just to make it more... um, satisfactory to the basic bitches like myself. I was going to say, cause otherwise <laughs> he doesn't really like super learn his lesson. Cause even as soon as the flood comes, he's like, Oh, that's just science guys. No big deal. Yeah. Like fucking it was going to flood. Yeah. Just disregarding the fact yeah, that he was on his hands hydro- and his knees. Yeah. Hydroelectric up this whole valley. <laughs> so I'd like to think he died, not because I want him dead, but I feel like that mm, would have sort of. Then it would like mean, yeah, no, I think, I think uh, that's, a, that's honestly a really valid reading, especially <laughs> considering like the, uh, cause like another thing I mentioned is like the other like semi ripoff of this soundtrack um uh which is of course the cold mountain soundtrack mm-hmm. uh like it's man of constant sorrow equivalent is called idumea which is a shape note song uh which uh is also called am i born to die um <laughs> and so like technically it's a, like, yes you are yeah we all are. a really like uh you know it's just like whenever you look at like christian music of any stripe in the south it is very you know uh in a weird way, it hadn't really got to that like obsession with revelation yet. Mm-hmm. 
you know, that we would see like now, like now they're super obsessed with like this idea of the apocalypse. Like back then it was just like, oh, cool death now. I guess I got to be cool with this and and not this idea of like fire and brimstone and revelation and my enemies are going to be punished. You know, it it, it was honestly really different. Like before, geez, I guess the 1950s, 1960s was when it kind of started to like have that turn and like actually Jesus is going to do the fire and brimstone and we're all going to get raptured. And like, yeah, like that's a fairly new invention. Much darker. Uh, if you guys want to please follow us on Twitter, we are at Musical Splaining with no G and uh, Musical Splaining with a G on Instagram. I am at Kavitaharian on Twitter, at Permafriends on Instagram. And I am at the Lindsay Ellis on Twitter and at audible.com slash Musical Splaining to get your free 30 day trial. That's right. Uh, you guys, we, you know, I know everybody loves my smooth ad reads, but please go follow <laughs> those links and check them out. Additionally, if you do like our podcast, which we assume you do, if you've listened to it this far, please go ahead and give us a fa- yeah. fantastic five-star rating everywhere you can. Yeah, Not or on an Yelp. honest three-star rating. <laughs> uh, on Yelp. It does yeah, help. Yeah, put us on you, Yelp. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah, give us a Yelp page. I'd like to see how long it takes before that gets taken down. It, we it, live in, uh, where do we live? Canoga Park. Yeah, we're in Canoga Park. <laughs> It does help when you uh, you let the world know that you think this is good. So please yes, go ahead and do that. We appreciate it. And also like your tweets and your fan art and your, uh, you know, suggestions, good and bad. We appreciate them. Emotional support. All of it. We love you guys. Yes. We, we love it when you uh, goad Kaveh about his very <laughs> obvious nascent phantom love that he weirdly tries to deny. I don't know. We don't get it. But Never. <laughs> Sure, sure, Jan. <laughs> well, thanks for going on this journey with me. Next time, see you later. <laughs>